Hello everyone, it's July 28th, 2020, so the cursed docking system might be cursed. Or maybe just possessed by a space ghost. It was doing its own thing while docking with station, luckily it decided to straighten up and fly right. But let's have a guess at what went wrong, it probably wasn't a ghost. And liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 270 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And no Dennis. And no Dennis. <laughs> he couldn't make it today, but, you know, there are two of us, so. Yeah, and I won't be here next week because I will be Sunday. I will be driving from Nebraska to Illinois. Nebraska to, okay, so that's just one section of your trip, obviously. So, mm -hmm. wow, that's a whole lot of corn, I guess, huh? It, it really is. I mean, I, I love I love road trips. And I've driven from Chicago to, uh, to Chico, um, which is a three day trip. You, you do, uh, Chicago to Nebraska, Nebraska to like Salt Lake. And I say Nebraska, it's a huge state, but like you just kind of drive to the middle of it and stop. <laughs> like there's, there's nothing out there. Uh, and then, uh, you go from like Lexington, Nebraska to Salt Lake City and then Salt Lake to Chico. And that's three well paced, days of like 10 hours and so to get from here to Belfont, pennsylvania you do chico to salt lake salt lake to nebraska nebraska to western illinois somewhere um i could go all the way into the city but i'm not going into the city uh with covid 19 happening mm -hmm. uh, so i'm gonna be staying like in the joliet area it really sucks once you get into that half of the country there are no hotels in the middle of nowhere anymore um, cause you know, it's just easier to drive to, uh, to not a large city, but a small city like Joliet. And so we're going to have to be in, you know, a little bit of a concentrated population area, but you know, what are you going to do? Um, and then, uh, Joliet to Belfont, which is, that's the shortest leg. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like it would be, but then when compared to, I guess, you know, way out West, it's just, mm -hmm. uh. I suppose so. It just kind of underscores how big the country is. I mean, yeah. not that I need room, you know, reminding because it does look pretty big on a map, but then when you have to drive it, it's just wow, you know? Yeah. And like I said, I, I love, I love road trips, but I know that by that fourth day, <laughs> mm -hmm, <yeah. laughs> you're going to want nothing more than to get out of the car. And thank goodness our house in Belfont has got a backyard um, because I've got three puppies who are going to be so oh, wow. ready. <laughs> to run around that's gonna be an adventure right there yeah 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 exactly Curse, K-U-R-S, the cursed docking system on Soyuz. That, that had some kind of an issue a couple of days ago, but we don't really know what it was, but luckily it fixed itself. So I don't know if you can speculate any more than I can, because I have no idea what caused this particular issue, but it was having some alignment problems, uh, not actually lining up with the docking port. Yeah, well, so I can I can give you a little bit of background. So uh, this was specifically KERS NA, the, the version was NA. It was built to replace KERS A, and so A is a autonomous and NA is new autonomous, right? Um, well, new active. New active. Okay. Uh, right, right, right. Because, uh, there's also curs P, which is passive. It's a, the passive component of curs. So anyway, um, curs NA first flew in 2011 on Progress M15M. Um, and then, uh, in 2015, Progress MS01 was the first vehicle to use KERS NA as the primary system. And then KERS N, uh, I'm sorry, KERS A 
was retired at the end of 16 and, and stopped being flown at that point. Now, Kurz NA uh, has had a few issues. I remember that they had a progress trying to dock with Kurz NA a few years ago, and they, they actually had to turn off the Kurz system and switch over to Toru, which is the remote control system. And so this isn't the first time there's been a problem. Um, but wh- why don't you tell us a little bit about what actually happened this week? So as I understand it, the launch, which I don't remember the date, what, just a couple of days ago of uh, this most recent resupply mission, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, has two and a half tons of various supplies. And this was the, well, what's it called? The, I always forget, like the fast approach. You know what I'm yeah, talking about. rapid rendezvous or something. Like yeah, that. I believe rapid rendezvous because it, it had made two orbits and this was all like less than four hours after liftoff and then it was ready to dock. So it comes within 200 meters of station and then it holds its position. Sorry, it's it's called fast track rendezvous, but more fast often track. you'll hear four hour rendezvous. They'll actually specify okay. it's the four hour rendezvous. So uh, it got within 200 meters of station and then it held its position. And that's normal, right? You, you right. do the, the 200 meter uh, halt before final approach. Right. So yeah, it halts and then it's given the command to make its final approach. And then from there, it starts to kind of like veer off and it said it was 10 degrees. And I'm not sure, I might be able to find out if I read a little bit further, like there might be some more information, but I'm not sure 10 degrees in which direction, which is kind of hard to explain anyway when you're talking about something in space. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be pitch roller. Yeah. Or well, pitch or yaw relative to the progress. So yeah, it came within five meters and it was still off by 10 degrees. And at that point, they were thinking that they were going to have to switch over to the Toru system, which would have been manipulated by Anatoly Ivanishin. But in fact, just at the last moment, seemingly all by itself, it just sort of, you know, corrected itself and it actually realigned itself and then came in for a picture-perfect docking. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it just kind of fixed itself. So they had to tell him at the last minute, hey, don't take control, don't take control, because they were just about to switch over, which I guess is something that's initiated from station. So, you know, he flips mm-hmm. the switch and then and, you know, that gives them active control. But ground control told him, don't do it. It's fine. It's working. And so, you know, they just let it do its thing. But uh, it's just a bit anomalous, like why that would happen. Um, and that's kind of what I'm wondering. One big difference between this new system and uh, the old one is that the old one had five different antennas that were required. And this one only has one. But uh, I mean, apparently it's more efficient nonetheless, because obviously, if not, they would not have switched to it. But I'm wondering if maybe it's just like, you know, some kind of a antenna problem or something, but I don't know. I, I kind of doubt it. So actually, I pulled up the docking video and it was off in the negative yaw direction. So it was off to the left. And there was actually a roll component as well. It looks like it's maybe a, a five or 10 degree roll clockwise as well. And um, yeah, you know, it's it, it the fact that it was able to correct itself makes me think that this might just be um, something similar to a dead band issue, right? Where the vehicle goes, okay, I can correct this. I'm going to save fuel and not correct mm-hmm. it while giving all the humans heart attacks. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, it, it looks really solid on its off position, right? It looks like it's really like decided to add a component to its navigation and say, okay, I'm not going to aim for the target. I'm going to aim for this position over here. And it looks like it's actually tracking that target as well, which feels like it's not just a simple dead band issue. Uh, it's not, it's not just like, Hey, we're going to save fuel. It looks like it's actually actively tracking 
the wrong orientation. So just to clarify how it came in or how it made its approach, it was perfectly, as it were, lined up. Yeah, it diverted. It, it, it was lined up. It diverted to yaw mm. sideways a little bit. Right. Kind of did this uh, uh, Tokyo drift <laughs> in towards the system <laughs> and then came back. So, you know, it, it looks like its translation was in the correct direction. It was just yawed in the wrong direction. Right. Then it corrected itself. So it's... It's it's really weird. This definitely looks like a software issue to me. Oh, you know what? Actually, maybe it maybe it wasn't a diversion. I'm looking at the at the full video, and actually, it looks like it was off for a lot of that. It's just harder to tell. Yeah, it definitely looks like it's a degree offset because it gets closer and closer and closer as it comes in, and then at the very end, it looks like it snaps over. That's actually really bizarre. Man, on the on the views from station, and you know, as opposed to the onboard video, you can really see this pitching and rolling around. It it doesn't look good. You should not be able to see it moving that quickly. I'm actually surprised that they never switched over to Toru. That's yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at yeah, 26 minutes and 25 seconds ish in this video is where you can really see this. You know, that that soy's rocking like it's really. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that that's not fast forwarded because this is all recorded in real time, right? Like they because it looks so like it's really doing something there. It's like really yeah. You can see it pitching or I guess yawing and rolling, and it just. <laughs> So this week we got three shorts and sweets, and the first one, Astra will make another attempt at orbit. So after several failed attempts to reach orbit with its rocket launch vehicle, Astra has now established a new date for a launch attempt sometime in early August. CEO Chris Kemp stated that they never expected to reach orbit on their first attempt, but that they should be able to iterate and improve. This latest attempt was preceded by a successful pad test of Rocket 3.1 on July 16th, and will be made between August 2nd through 7th, where each day they have a three and a half hour window to launch from Kodiak Island to make their targeted orbit. Next, Launcher 1's failure update. Back in May, uh, the first flight of Launcher 1 was terminated just after ignition and pitch up. This week, it was revealed that several seconds after Newton 3's ignition, the O2 high pressure feed line broke and the engine shut down. The failed components were identified and fixes designed. The next engine is being upgraded, and the next Launcher 1 is nearly complete. Virgin Orbit is targeting a second launch by the end of the year. And finally, NASA has concerns with Starliner, or NASA has more concerns with Starliner. I guess we should say this is the third time that we've kind of talked about this. In addition to an updated list of corrective actions that will help bring Starliner into service, a NASA safety panel has expressed concern over Boeing's overall quality control. The chair of the panel, Patricia Sanders, said it was still way off before we have two fully functional vehicles. There were no specific recommendations, however, by the panel beyond advising the commercial crew program to ensure there is a balance between schedule and work on the vehicle. And then a quote by Don Erlene of the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel. Despite this progress, which is definite and in fact measurable, the panel continues to be concerned about quality control problems that seemingly have plagued the Boeing Commercial Crew Program. This is still an issue that the panel will continue to watch closely as the orbital flight test and later crew flight tests are conducted. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have an interesting correction from Amy Parent about uh, a shuttle mission. Yeah, this was last week's This Week in Spaceflight History, mm -hmm. and it has to do with what constitutes an abort to orbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a Amy is exactly right. She said, I don't think that STS-93 counts as an abort to orbit. 
Yeah, absolutely right. So I was thinking of STS-51F when I, I think I said abort to orbit like once, and thank goodness I didn't say it more. <laughs> but uh, STS-51F did a true abort to orbit. So the, the key here is an abort is, you know, they're clicking the abort selector wheel uh, through each of the modes as they're ascending. And you can hear those calls uh, on the, on the radio as they're, you know, saying, okay, you're ready to go to this mode. You're ready to go to this mode. And then finally, I think the last one is, uh, press to, uh, abort, abort to orbit. Press to orbit. Or pr press to orbit. There you go. You're right. That's, that's exactly it. So I say press to orbit. And in this case, if you listen to the launch audio, which Amy was kind enough to link to, and it'll, it'll be in the show notes. You can hear them uh, <laughs> have engine cutoff, and they go, oh, crap, that was early. Oh, crap, we're not going fast enough. And then immediately decide whether or not they needed to do an ohms burn. You can hear the surprise, actually, when they're like, uh, I think we ran out of oxygen. Mm. Uh, did, did you guys see the, the, uh, the low oxygen warning? Yeah, yeah, we saw that. <laughs> it's kind of scary. So thank you. That That is a good distinction to make because if you – uh, do an abort to orbit, you get terminal guidance to do its whole thing. In this case, terminal guidance was cut off unexpectedly. So I, I think that's a that's a really good distinction to make there. That's cool. We haven't had like a like a good correction in a in a while. Mm -hmm. I feel mm -hmm. good old fashioned correction burn. I guess we should move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, and we have just one winner, Chuppa Turkosi, and the clue was get to work on Soyuz. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, and, and I could have made this a slightly different clue, but I thought it was going to be a little obvious uh, if I did. This week in spaceflight history is the 30th of July, 1980. Svetlana Savitskaya was selected in the second group of female cosmonauts. So this is a little, a little fraught, right? Because we've got women in space and it's always a question whether they're there uh, because of their gender or because of their talent. You know, the, the first, uh, female cosmonaut, uh, Valentina Tereshkova did not have the pilot certifications that a lot of her male colleagues did. Well, Svetlana Savitskaya did. All right. Uh, Savitskaya is a aerospace badass. So she started skydiving at age 16 in secret. She didn't let her parents know. This, you know, kind of tells you that she comes from a privileged uh, background, which is great for her because she was able to sneak off at age 16 and start skydiving. Her dad uh, ended up finding a, uh, a parachute knife in her backpack one day. Um, and luckily, her dad was a World War II fighter pilot and wound up as the deputy commander in chief of the Soviet air defense. And so when he found out, he was super excited and he it encouraged her to continue. I think it's kind of interesting that he knows what a parachute knife right. is or what it looks right. like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So kind of a uh, best case, worst case scenario. <laughs> Uh, where your dad actually knows what this is, but is excited about it. So she started skydiving at 16. By age 17, she had done 450 jumps. That's insane. Uh, they must have dumped so much money uh, into her skydiving career. So she then graduated high school and enrolled at the Moscow State Aviation Institute. And then after that, she became a test pilot for Yakovlev or Yakovlev. I hate these Russian words because they're always contracted in common parlance. So, right, because it's the, their airplanes were all yak number. And so 
I can get the yak, but the Yakovlev mm. is a little harder. So she became a test pilot for Yakovlev, the, uh, the airplane manufacturer. And she became, uh, just an incredible pilot. She joined the national aerobatics team and started competing at FAI World Aerobatic Championships. Her first one was in 1970 and she won with an all female team. And then, uh, in following years, the, uh, championships are every two years. So then she won the second and third place, uh, titles in, in those successive years. Um, all in all, she set 14 FAI records, which is pretty awesome. A lot of them were, were for altitude and, and, uh, airspeed. So, uh, in 1979, she was selected and 1979 and 1980. So I'm setting the event July 30th, 1980. I think that's when she graduated. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I've seen, uh, both years cited. Um, but the one with the date was 1980. So anyway, in that period, she was selected as part of the second group of female astronauts. Of course, the first group included Valentina Tereshkova. Her first space flight was uh, the 19th of August, 1982. She flew on Soyuz T7, and that marked her as the second woman to fly in space. It was nearly 20 years after Tereshkova's flight. Um, so, you know, quite a gap there. And like I said, it, it always comes down to politics when we see women in underrepresented groups flying in space. These people have to work twice as hard for half the accolades sometimes. So yes, she was the second woman to fly in space. Yes, she was highly qualified in it and by all means, uh, you know, the right person to fly on this mission. However, this flight came just a couple of months after Sally Ride's assignment to STS-7 was announced. And there are some of these suspicious coincidences all throughout uh, early uh, female spaceflight. So anyway, Soyuz T-7 went and docked with Salyut-7, um, which made Salyut-7 the first mixed-gender space station crew. Now, the clue comes up here. Um, I said, get to work on a Soyuz. I could have said, get to work on a Salyut, but I felt like that was a little, a little easy. Um, so I decided to go with the, the vehicle that she rode up on. So when she was climbing out of the Soyuz, um, one of the other cosmonauts, Valentin Lebedev, boy, I struggle with, with Russian, basically floated up with an apron in his hand and told her to get to work. I have no clue how they managed to get an apron on station. Maybe this was like a, uh, not a domestic apron, but like an apron that they actually wore, uh, during science experiments. I'm not sure. But anyway, how incredibly insulting. Oh, just, it makes your blood boil. So I mean, I assume it's a joke, right? I mean, maybe one in poor taste, but it's he, definitely a joke. Mean- it's yeah. definitely a joke, and it's definitely an incredible poor taste, yeah. So, Salute 7 arrived with experiment, you know, more science experiments, as well as mail for the crew. And what's interesting is these three astronauts rode up on Soyuz T-7, and they returned on Soyuz T-8. Basically, what happened was the crew that rode up on Soyuz T-5 was on a long-duration 
uh, stay on on Salyut. And so this was basically a Soyuz refresher mission. So they, they came back down on Soyuz T5 on August 27th. Um, the long duration crew ended up staying there for 211 days. So after uh, returning to Earth, so Savitskaya uh, flew twice in space, and uh, her second flight was on July 17th, 1984, um, when she flew on Soyuz T-12. Um, this made her the first woman to fly in space twice, and it was actually mission to Salyut 7 again. And in the intervening time between T-7 and T-12, Salyut had had some issues. Um, most notably was a fuel leak that ended up depleting one of their fuel tanks. Um, and they had three, uh, three leaks were identified on fuel lines. Um, they were able to fix two. Um, they had to bring up a new, uh, a new crew that had trained in, uh, in this procedure, but they ended up fixing two. The third one required, um, some special tools. Um, and that's the primary thing that, that Soyuz T12 was bringing up were these uh, these EVA tools. Now we got to we got to go back to the uh, conspicuous timing. Uh, the year before T12 launched, NASA announced that Catherine Sullivan would be the first woman to go on EVA on a shuttle mission. Uh, Russia, uh, of course, goes no, thank you. We will take that title. And uh, in November, uh, so they launched in July. In November, Savitskaya became the first female spacewalker. And she was not there to repair the fuel leak. She was actually working with a tool called the URI, the universal hand tool, which is actually really freaking cool. And uh, Savitskaya did some pretty nice demo work of the vehicle. So the URI is an electron beam gun, which was intended for uh, metal work in vacuum. And um, Savitskaya had to do a lot of training in uh, both uh, vacuum chambers and on parabolic flights. And it's it's interesting because this is a brand new tool and they actually were a little skittish around it. Um, they made sure not to point it at the space station while it was plugged in, but they did a couple of different experiments with it. This was uh, all experiments on metal samples and not any actual work on the space station. Um, so Savitsky was able to cut half a millimeter titanium sheet, uh, sheet metal. Um, she also, um, did some soldering, uh, examples and some silver spray coating examples. Um, and then I'm not sure if she or her fellow spacewalker, I forget his name, uh, actually did some welding examples as well. The URI, they, they all said that it performed fantastic, but it kind of sounds like it's, uh, uh, a little bit of optimistic propaganda because I don't believe it was ever used after this. So, uh, and it certainly wasn't ever used to construct a space station, which is kind of the gold standard, uh, of welding in space. So, you know, all these, all these political things from the interviews that I've read, it definitely seems like she understood that she, well, that, that, her gender was, was a limiting factor and that the political, um, the political aspects of her missions were definitely a, a critical part, kind of a kind of the stepping stone to getting her where she needed to be. And she seems like she took it in stride, you know, just kind of like, well, this is the world I live in. If I want to work in space, this is what I got to deal with. And it's fantastic that even though she, you know, was kind of a, a cog in the political machine, that's a reference to an article that's linked in the show notes. That's really fantastic. Um, even though she, 
seems to have been a cog in the political machine. She was incredibly competent and, you know, a, a good at her job and very proud of her work. So, you know, it's, it's one of those interesting situations where things are wrong. I was going to say uh, a phrase that would need to get bleeped. Things are screwed up, but the people who ultimately end up succeeding quite often uh, have this unexpected view where they're like, yeah, you know, can't, can't change anything. You know, hopefully it'll change in the future. I'm just going to deal with what I have. And, uh, you know, of course, we need people who are who are unwilling to put up with the status quo. And that's how change happens. Um, but it's interesting to see so many people who succeed no matter what the situation is and, and go go do cool things. So uh, Svetskia almost flew a third time. And actually her third flight was going to be an all-female Soyuz crew, which is pretty cool. It was canceled ostensibly because Savitskaya became pregnant and gave birth to her son, which is, uh, you know, got to be a happy time and probably one of the best reasons to, you know, not go to space. But I kind of suspect that it would have resulted in less political cachet um, then it was worth. I'm not sure. It, it didn't sound, it's, you know, it sounds like, well, you, you had plenty of time to know that she was going to have a, a child. Why, why is this getting canceled when it is? Anyway, that's this week in spaceflight history. That's a good one. And I have a clue for next week. I'm not going to be here next week. So it's going to be up to David and Dennis to do this one, but I have an audio clue. It's uh, next week in 1989. And the clue is remember how I was saying in that PSA earlier that adding heat to brewed coffee will burn it. Well, this percolator burns the coffee while it brews. Hey, at least it kills two birds with one stone. So that's next week in 1989. Something to do with coffee? We'll find out. Uh, so if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got four launches. I feel like it's been a while since we've had four launches. So yeah. this is nice. And we, and we have one particularly cool one. They're all cool. Yes, but... we do. All right. So first is Ariane 5 flying Galaxy 30, MEV2, and BSAT-4B. So Galaxy 30 is a communication satellite. MEV2 is the mission extension vehicle. Two, um, which is a satellite servicing spacecraft. Uh, MEV-1 is currently locked on or is uh, docked with a um, an Intel sat, I think, um, up in uh, geosynchronous orbit. And then um, uh, BSAT-4B is a, uh, a TV uh, broadcasting satellite. This three-vehicle flight will be launched July 28th. Um, at 2129, it, it has a window. So the window runs from 2129 to 2215 UTC. And then next up is July 29th, and that is the launch of a Proton. And that's carrying uh, Express 80 and Express 103. And these are communication satellites uh, for a Russian satellite communication company. Uh, and this is for high-speed internet access and data transmission across Russia. So I guess pretty standard Internet, satellites. TV, radio, yeah. That kind of thing. And uh, this is launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome on, again, July 29th at 2127 UTC. So that's uh, 527 on the East Coast or 227 on the West Coast. So that's a pretty good time to check that out. And then uh, a launch that we definitely need to read the U.S. Times for because no one's going to want to miss it. It is Atlas V flying Mars 2020, the Perseverance rover. Oh, so cool. It's 
insane that we're launching this in the middle of a pandemic and none of the, I mean, it's, it's slipped a couple times, but it hasn't slipped directly due to work limitations. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I'm sure they play a part in all of it, but uh, they have such a, a narrow target to hit that they really are putting a, a lot of emphasis on getting this out the door as it were. So this is going to be flying on an Atlas uh, 5 in the 541 configuration. So that's a 5-meter fairing, four solid rocket boosters, and a single-engine Centaur. So that window is 1150 to 1350 UTC. Here in North America, that's going to be 750 to 950 AM Eastern Time, or 450 to 650 Pacific. So it's really early for uh, us West Coast folks, but how exciting. Another giant uh, rover, as well as the first atmospheric flight vehicle (laughs) ingenuity that you know the ingenuity uh helicopter so 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 exciting once it launches is it going to be the standard six months yeah so it it is currently well currently it, it will land on the 18th of february 2021 if that landing date slips it'll be slipping because we're moving to the next launch window Pro- probably if it if they have to they may be able to push the landing date but it's gonna screw with the landing ellipse so it's not something that uh is is desirable at all but yeah once this thing launches we won't see it again until it's uh safely landed in jezero crater yeah i'm gonna have to set my alarm make sure i watch mm-hmm. that because uh mm-hmm. totally worth it and it's a two-hour launch window so I mean, let's hope they get it the first time. <laughs> you know, you know what I should do is I should uh, wake up just a little bit before the window opens and run outside and see if I can see the Neowise comet because I haven't been able to see it yet. It is currently visible after sunset as well, but the skies are so bright here that yeah. I haven't been able to see it. And so I'm hoping that maybe before sunrise, it'll be uh, a little easier to see. And then next up is on July 31st, and that is a Falcon 9 that's launching Starlink 9 and Black Sky Global. So yeah, Starlink 9, we uh, we all know what that is. Black Sky, I think, is this the second or third time that they've launched some of these because I think that they've already launched some Black Sky satellites, which are these little microsatellites. I believe so. At least I know that they've been mentioned before. Maybe Black Sky launched with someone else, but these are the uh, the Earth observation microsatellites. Yeah, so uh, this will be uh, Black Sky's fifth launch, I believe. Um, So they launched on uh, PSLV and then Falcon 9 uh, back in 2018, and then uh, they were on two different electron flights. So they're all so they're all over the place. So Starlink and Black Sky Sats, uh, and that is launching uh, from Kennedy Space Center uh, from Launch Complex 39A at 0745 UTC or 3:45 in the morning on the East Coast. So probably I'm not going to see that one a little bit early, but uh, if you want to get up early, you can take a look at that too. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Let's do over the show then, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 p.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. 
mechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And so that is it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.